You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. We live in a world that constantly yells at us to live selfish lives. But we also have the Word of God and the Spirit who whispers to us constantly to live lives that are selfless. So how is it that we listen to the whisper of God's word, the whisper of God's spirit to to live a selfless life in a self-centered world when the world constantly is yelling at us to be as self-centered as we can be? These coming several weeks, we're gonna be in the gospel of Mark together uh, to learn, to pattern our lives after the servant Jesus to look into the life of God's son, the servant Jesus Christ, to learn this summer how we, through holy sweat, can live a life that is selfless in the middle of a self-centered world. So if you have a ribbon in your Bible, you may wanna mark it there in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, because that's where we'll be for the next several weeks here at Highland. And as we make our way to Mark chapter one, I wanna give you some background, and maybe you're very familiar with the Gospel of Mark and all the things that are happening there, but it might be a wise thing for us today to have some background on, on Mark's Gospel, a little context, so we, we know what we're walking into these next several weeks together. Uh, here's the very first thing you need to know about the background of Mark's Gospel, and this won't be a surprise to you. It was written by Mark. Actually, John Mark is what, what his, his name was. He dropped the John and went by Mark through the majority of the New Testament. Uh, John Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. We learned this over in Colossians chapter four. Barnabas, of course, was one of the missionary partners of, of Paul. He was from Cyprus. He was a very intelligent man, and his cousin was, was Mark, and so they were family. John Mark, Mark also went on the very first missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas went on. Uh, you might remember this if you've studied the New Testament before. This might sound familiar. maybe brand new news to you. It wasn't a very good journey for Mark. He got about halfway through or so, made it to the the region of Pamphylia. And there in Pamphylia, things were dry, like spiritually dry. Uh, We only have one salvation recorded in the New Testament uh, during that time. And, And Mark just gave up. He quit. Like the most difficult portion of the journey was still ahead of them. The most arduous part of the journey was still ahead of them. And so Mark, probably being immature, Mark probably being a little bit younger, uh, he just gave up. He quit. He's like, I'm done. And he just turns back and, and he goes home. Well, fast forward a few years, and now Paul and Barnabas are about to leave on their second missionary journey, and this is recorded in Acts chapter 15 for us, and they're about to set sail, and guess who showed up at the docks? Mark. He's like, hey, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go this time, and Paul goes, no, you're a quitter. I'm not taking you with me. Like last time I took you, you just gave up halfway. We needed you there, and you failed on that trip, and so I'm not gonna take you. Paul understood the rigors of of pioneering missionary journeys. It was gonna take a lot of endurance. It was gonna take someone that had zero quit in them. So Paul says, no, you're not going with us because you're a quitter. Well, blood is thicker than water. Barnabas begins to argue with Paul, saying, wait a minute, this is my cousin. Like, we need to give him a second chance. And Paul's like, no, he's a quitter. He's a failure. We're not bringing him. 
And so now Paul and Barnabas are starting to have some problems on the dock before they leave. And so Barnabas decides, I'll take Mark with me, my cousin. We'll go off and, and do our own missionary journey. And Paul finds a brand new missionary partner named Silas, and they take off on their second missionary journey. And really throughout it all, God kind of uses all this to now there's not just one team of two. Now there's two teams of four, and they're going out and they're spreading the gospel and they're encouraging the churches and planting churches and sharing the gospel of Christ and people are being saved. Well, you fast forward the rest of Mark's life and now it is toward the end of Paul's life. And guess who Paul wants to see? He says, bring me Mark for he has been profitable in the kingdom. Paul wants to see the quitter because now Paul says, God has done something in Mark's life. God has restored him. God has redeemed him. And I just wrote this down in my notes to pass along to you today. This is good news for the Christian. If you've ever quit or failed, God restores and redeems. I would imagine this room is filled with quitters. And this room is filled with failures. The times we look and go, man, I just feel like I've quit on God. And let me tell you, if you feel like you ever quit on God, God has not quit on you. He's a faithful God. And even in the biography of, of Mark himself, we see that God forgives and that God redeems. How about this? The, the, the missionary quitter becomes the gospel writer. God restores Mark. God can restore you. God can forgive you. God is, Christian, listen, God is committed to you. He is committed to you to mature as a disciple. He is committed to your life. God is committed to you, Christian, for your eternity. And even in the small biography of, of, of Mark, it speaks of God's desire and ability to redeem and restore people. You know, listen, when, when you're broken, God doesn't throw you away. He's a redeeming God. He is a restoring God. And so we see here Mark, he's the, the cousin of Barnabas. He is on the very first missionary journey, and he quits on that journey. But then how in the world would Mark even know what's happening in the life of, of Jesus? Because the gospel of Mark is all about the life of Jesus. And you probably know this, Mark wasn't one of the disciples. As far as we know, he was nowhere around in the time of, or nowhere around geographically in the time of Jesus. How is it then that Mark was able to write down the gospel of Jesus here in the gospel of Mark? Well, we know also as you continue to go through the New Testament that Mark was discipled by Peter. Peter, he also knew something about quitting and failure himself, and, and now he was redeemed by the Lord, and now he's discipling Mark, and in discipling Mark, he is passing down to Mark all of the stories of Jesus, all the activities, the acts of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the, the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and so some theologians actually call the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Peter, as told to Mark. So Mark writes down this gospel. In fact, he's the very first gospel writer to do so. The, the time frame of all of this is about 63 AD. Mark is in Rome, give or take a few years there, but about 63 AD, he becomes the very first gospel writer. He writes down as Peter has passed along to him, Peter the disciple of Christ, Peter the one who betrayed Christ, has passed down to Mark. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter calls Mark my spiritual son. So he has passed down the stories of Jesus to Mark that Mark has written them down as inspired by the Holy Spirit to give to the church today. What's, what's the theme of the gospel of Mark? Well, the theme is Jesus is a servant. And the, the theme of Matthew is that Jesus is the king. The theme of Luke is that Jesus was the son of man. 
The, the theme of, of John is that Jesus is God, but the theme of, of Mark is that Jesus is the servant. In fact, the crux verse of the gospel of Mark is Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that says, for even the son of man, he appeared not to be served, but to serve and to be a ransom for many. That's the heartbeat of the gospel of Mark, that when Christ came, he did not come to be served by all, he came to serve all, even to the point of obedience by being a ransom on the cross for our forgiveness and for our life. And I, I love Mark for, for a lot of reasons. My favorite thing is it's the shortest gospel. He is brief and blunt and short and sweet and concise. He strips all the excessive words out of the gospel. I think his theme is brevity is genius. Let's just get to the point, the bottom line. Let me just kind of tell you what's going on here. In fact, in the gospel of Mark, we see the word immediately used 41 times. That's my kind of guy. And immediately this happened, and immediately this happened. In fact, in our few uh, short 20 verses today, we're gonna look at, I think the word immediately is used four times. And so Mark is constantly going from one scene to the other scene, taking out all the excess words. And he's just going from this scene to this scene, short and sweet, bold and blunt and brief. This is the gospel of, of Mark. Now, why, why is that probably important to see? Because really Mark has no time to talk about anything else but Jesus living on a mission. That Jesus desired to, to obey his father. Jesus desired to, to have a clear sense of what the father wanted him to do. And one of my hopes after we march through at least the first several chapters of Mark this summer is that you and I also have a very clear sense of what the father wants us to do and who he wants us to be. Jesus lived on this distinct mission. He had this servant action about him. He lived on mission for the Father. So that's, well, that's all context. Now let's go to God's word. Mark chapter one, would you go with me please to verse one? Mark chapter one, verse one. We're gonna try to make it through, through 20 verses this morning. So I'm gonna start talking fast and moving fast. So listen fast as we go through this together. Mark chapter one, verse one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, I need to stop. We didn't get very far, far there. The, the word gospel uh, is really important. This, this does not, Mark does not say, let me tell you the stories of Jesus. Mark does not even say, let me tell you about the life of Jesus. Look at the key word that Mark is talking about. I need to tell you the good news. I need to tell you the gospel. Gospel means the good news. I need to tell you the good news. And so the gospel of Mark, here's another reason I like it. Over and over again, we see as God's people that we are beneficiaries of Christ who is the servant. So this is the gospel, not just the stories, not just the biography, not just the telling, but this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And so Mark goes back 700 years and the Holy Spirit tells him to write this down. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Verse three, it says that there was a voice crying. That, that's not boohooing with tears. It's a voice of passion. It, it's a clarion voice, a very clear voice of someone is coming. We need to prepare the way and that someone is the Lord. Let's make his path straight. I'm here crying in the wilderness, giving you this passionate speech. The Lord is coming. The Messiah is coming. God is coming. And now we see in verse four who this messenger is. Who is this voice of the one crying in the wilderness? Verse four says, John appeared. Baptizing in the wilderness, the same usage of that word wilderness there in verse four from verse three. 
and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, Highland, what a scene this must have been. Of baptism after baptism of people coming confessing their pride and confessing their sin and confessing their, their need to be forgiven. And they were confessing their sins to others. And there was these mass baptisms. What a spirit of revival must have been at that river. And it wasn't just a few people trickling down. Mark is very clear to say here, and all the people of Judea and all the people of Jerusalem, now certainly not every single one, but it was just a mass of people coming to the river, coming to confess their sins, coming to, to proclaim and believe this good news of God. What a scene of faith. What a scene of revival. And now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And look at this keto diet and he ate locusts and wild honey. Isn't that strange? Like here's Mark, right? Brief and to the point and like short and sweet and bottom line. And he takes the time to write out what this voice in the wilderness was wearing and what his diet was. Why would Mark take that opportunity to tell us what John was wearing and what he was eating? I think it seems to me it's very clear, pointing to John, that he was a humble man, that he was a servant himself, a servant of God, a servant of the people. Probably also points out to us, and this is probably a good word for us in the year 2019, that the message can't be about the messenger. The, the message is bigger than the messenger. In our nation today, we tend to, to flock to the speakers who are dressed the nicest and who act most like us. But you see, I don't think the people were drawn to John. I mean, he's wearing camel hair and is eating insects. Instead, John had laid hold of God and he was proclaiming that God will forgive. And that message of repentance, that message of forgiveness was, was drawing the hearts of the people who longed to be forgiven, who longed to know God. And so this was the message. They weren't drawn to John. They were drawn to the God that John was proclaiming. And there was this sense of, of revival, this sense of confession, this sense of, of faith. And look, look here again at verse six. Now John was clothed with, with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and he ate wild honey. And, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to even stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here's John the Baptist drawing people because he was pointing people to God. He was low in spirit and he says, there's someone coming after me that's mighty. In fact, he is so mighty, I am so unworthy even to stoop down and to come close to his sandals. I wrote in my notes this week to pass along to you in this spirit of of John, we see the spirit of a servant. Here's what I wrote down for you to write down if you want to. To have an accurate self-view of being a servant, we need an accurate biblical view of Jesus. And I think John had that. He knew that he was preparing the way of who? The Lord. And I know that word Lord is kind of overused sometimes in church circles. You know what it means? Boss. The boss is coming. 
the one who is in charge is coming and we need to make the paths straight for him. In other words, our hearts need to be prepared because the king is coming. The Lord himself, the boss is coming and he is mightier than I am and I am so low compared to him, I can't even stoop down to touch his sandals. All I can do is baptize with water, just physical, natural water, but when this one comes, this king comes, when the boss comes, he's gonna baptize you with the spirit of God. He had an accurate view of Jesus. Because he had an accurate biblical view of Jesus, he had the right self-view of his own servant nature. I would say that none of us in this house this morning will truly develop as a servant of God until we truly understand you and I are under the authority of a king. He's the boss. And we will always struggle being servants of God and even servants of one another until we have a true, biblical, accurate understanding of who the king is. And that as sons and daughters of God, we live under the authority of this king. In fact, Jesus, interesting, said of John the Baptist back in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, that this John the Baptist, he was the greatest man ever born of a woman. That's how much Jesus esteemed John, but look how much John esteemed Jesus. I can't even stoop down to untie his sandal. He is mightier than I. May we all in this house, all in this church family have a right understanding, a self-view of our nature of being a servant ourselves as followers of God when we understand an accurate biblical view of our king. Verse nine, uh, Mark chapter one. So in those days, here comes the king. Here here comes the way of the Lord. Here comes the boss. Here comes the mighty one. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he, Christ, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being ripped open, torn open, and the spirit descending on him like a dove. That's the indwelling power of the spirit now on Christ. And a voice came from heaven. Listen to the voice. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. We're still seeing the heart of a servant here. Jesus submits himself to John to be baptized. In the Gospel of Matthew, we see that John the Baptist is like, no, 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 I can't do that. Like, you're the son of God. I I cannot baptize you. But Jesus submits himself to John to be baptized. And in doing so, on the higher picture, Jesus is submitting himself to the Father by being baptized. And now, out of the Father's words, this is my son, you are my beloved son. Verse 11, with you I am well pleased. Jesus receives now this authority and he now receives this confidence to do what? To serve. The father has told him, you're my son, not just my son, you're my beloved son, not just my son and my beloved son, you're my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And in that, Christ now has the authority and the confidence to serve. You see, this is his coronation as a king, but also his inauguration as a servant. So for the remainder of the gospel of Mark, we see Jesus living out this life of being a servant, a servant to his father and a servant to others. And Jesus just operated out of this identity here as the son of God. And I would say to you, Highland, we do the same. You can mark this in your notes. We have the authority and the confidence to serve others because of our identity as daughters and sons of God. You see, this is where Jesus received his authority to serve. 
In the same way, listen, if you're in Christ Jesus, you're a Christian here today, God is well pleased with you. God is well pleased with you because you have by faith turned away from this life, repentance, and placed your faith in the Son of God for forgiveness and for life that will last forever. God is well pleased with you. You are his daughter, you are his son. This is why John, not this John, but the other John, the disciple would later write, behold, what manner of love the Father must have for us that we can be called the sons and daughters of God and such we are. God is well pleased with us in that manner of of love that he has for us, but you see in that in that calling, in that authority that God has given you as a daughter or son of God. You know what this frees us up to do? Listen, this is where we get mixed up. This frees us up now to serve others. This now frees us up to get second place and be okay. This now frees us up to put other people's preferences above our own. You see, because we're daughters and sons of God, and listen, you won't lose that title. Once you're a part of the family of God, Jesus says you're a part of that family forever. And because of that perfection of our salvation, that we're now daughters and sons of God, we have the authority and the confidence to to get last place and to put everyone else in Waco before us. Why? Because we're daughters and sons of God. I would say, and this is just John Durham opinion, but I would say that Jesus was able to serve us with joy all the way to the cross because he knew the Father had pleasure in him all the way back at the baptism. He knew that this was a relationship that would never be broken. You are my beloved son, and in you I am well pleased, and I believe that starts the clock for the cross so that he could go to the cross on our behalf. You see, again, you and I are the beneficiaries of the servant Jesus. You and I are the beneficiaries of the cross of Christ. And I think you can trace it all the way back to this baptism when God the Father says, you're the king and you're my son, and now let's go. And he begins to march toward the cross in joy because the Father found pleasure in him. Verse 12, verse 13, this is interesting. The Spirit, now remember in verse 10, the Spirit came down on him, came down upon Christ, the the, the power descending on him like a dove. Now that same Spirit in verse 12, the Spirit, here's Mark's fun key word he uses all the time, the Spirit immediately, so he comes up out of the water, the voice has said, you're my beloved son, I'm well pleased. The Spirit immediately drives Jesus out to the wilderness. And Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was there with the wild animals and the angels themselves had to come and minister to Jesus. Now don't don't miss this. The same spirit that descended upon Christ in power was the exact same spirit that drove Jesus into the wilderness. I would say that destroys the prosperity gospel. The same spirit that goes, hey, here's power, here's victory, here's life, Here's, I'll use a Pentecostal word, here's your anointing, Jesus, was the same spirit that drove Jesus to a place of suffering and testing and difficulty. God's love is not a pampering love. It's a refining love. And God so loved his son that after the joy of baptism, he sends him out for the test. He sends him out for the refining. He sends him out for the 40 days of temptation 
God's love is not a spoiling love. It's a perfecting love. The same spirit that rejoiced in the victory and the inauguration and the coronation of the servant king was the same servant that drove Jesus to a place of testing. Verse 14, man, Mark moves fast on this. Now after John was arrested, so here he was preaching and baptizing revival, now he's arrested. Jesus came into Galilee and Jesus came proclaiming the gospel. There's that word again, the good news of God saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now let me just tell you that verse 15 right there seems like a very short verse, but I would submit to you today, it's one of the most consequential verses in all the New Testament. I would say today it's one of the most hugely consequential passages, just that one sentence, in fact, just those few words, the time is fulfilled. Because the word time right there in Greek is the, is the word kairos. And kairos does not mean like a date on the calendar or you know, looking at your watch and wondering what time it is. Uh, kairos is like a, a turning point in history. A kairos is like a sovereign moment. It's like an epical hour in human history. The time has come. So when the time has come, when Jesus says the time has come, you know what happened right there? The Old Testament was gone. The New Testament has come. The time has come. When Jesus said the time has come, it means that all the prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled in that one sentence. The time is now here. The time is now fulfilled. The invisible kingdom of God was now made visible. The, the, the mystery has been unwrapped. The kingdom of God was there because the king was there. The time is fulfilled. The New Testament is beginning. Here's the new testimony of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. The king himself is here. What is our response to that? To repent, to turn from sin, and believe in this good news. And we'll come back and revisit that in a few moments. Verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, I love this, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately, I underlined it, I think, for you on the screen behind me. There's one of Mark's favorite words, but I love this. Immediately, they left their nets and they followed him. So Jesus goes on a little further and he sees James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who were in a boat. They were mending the nets and immediately Jesus calls out to them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and just followed Jesus. This has always fascinated me. There had to have been this authority and the directive command, hey, come follow me. There was not this introduction of, hey, my name's Jesus, first of all, we'll start there. I just got baptized, just went through 40 days, came from heaven, I'm, I'm the Lord, I'm the boss, and I'm God's son, and I'm looking for you know, some men we're gonna go on an adventure for about three years. It's gonna end a little weird, but I would love for you to, to come and, and join me if you want to. Like, I know you're probably fishing and doing stuff right now. Follow me. And they dropped their stuff. And poor Zebedee, I've always thought about Zebedee, like James and John just leave him in the boat with the hired hands. Now, this was not some one-pole fishing business. There was, this was a, a family business going on. They had hired servants in that boat, and they just, they drop it off, and, and drop it all, and they just go. Oh, fishers of men, that's what we wanna do. 
Follow you, yes, we'll, we'll follow you. Again, this is gonna be one of those videos. If Jesus has a video player in heaven, I wanna see that scene. I wanna watch that. And, and I just wanna see how that happened because it sounds like here in Mark and really all of the gospels pretty much give the same description. There wasn't a 24-hour window of contemplation. There wasn't you know, a, a family meeting. There wasn't, hey, can I sleep on this for a couple of days, Jesus, and I'll, and I'll get back to you. It wasn't, let me talk to some of my friends or kind of send a text out to kind of see what other people think and put a poll on Twitter and see if maybe I should follow Jesus or not follow Jesus. It was, I, I will drop everything. And here's what I put in my notes for you to write down this week. You know you're growing into the character of Christ when immediate describes your obedience. You know that you and I are both maturing as Christ followers, that we're developing more and more every day into the character of Christ, which by the way is the will of God that you and I are conformed to the image of Christ when the word immediate can describe our obedience. God, your word said it, okay. Your spirit's directing me and it's in accordance to scripture and it's for the good of others, yes. I'm not gonna debate this, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna even pray about this. If you've told me, yes. You know, we know that we're growing into the character of Christ, developing his disciples when the word immediate can describe our obedience. Here's what I'll do this morning. I'm gonna kind of start wrapping this up. I'm gonna do this every Sunday morning for the next several weeks that we're in this series. I just wanna give you some, I hope, really practical ways that holy sweat can be practiced this week in our lives. I think it was my dad that I first heard say this, a Sunday morning sermon isn't worth anything unless it changes your lifestyle on Monday morning. So maybe here's some really practical ways that you and I can practice some holy sweat this week. And I'm gonna give you five quick things and I'm not telling you to do all five of these things, but I'm not telling you to do any of them. I'm just asking you to ask the Lord, is this a way that I can practice some holy sweat? Is this some way that I can have an accurate self-view of being a servant of God and a servant of others. So here's just some ways, some, some ways that holy sweat can be practiced in our lives in Waco this week. Number one, meet a neighbor and, and bring a pie or a cake or cookies with you. Especially if you're an awkward conversationalist, don't just go up to someone's house, knock on the door and stand there waiting for a conversation to happen. You know, cakes, pies, cookies, that's always a great way to to kind of break the ice. And so maybe there's some neighbors that you don't know yet or some neighbors kind of like Jennifer and I that we should know, we just don't know yet. And so for, for us, it's gonna be a, a week of probably making a cake, making a pie. I'm not gonna make a cake. I'm not gonna make, Jennifer will make a cake, make a pie. I'll buy some cookies from HGB and bring them to, to our neighbors, introduce ourselves to them. That's a great, you know, for some people, it'll be the sweat in the kitchen making it. That's a part of understanding the servanthood nature. And for some, I understand, especially introverts, it's gonna be the sweat you produce by standing at a door of someone that you don't know. You're just, you're, please, Lord, don't let them be there. Oh my gosh, they're coming to the door and they're, you know, there they are. I'd encourage you to, to do that, that'd be a great way to practice some holy sweat this week. Meet a neighbor and bring a pie, cake, or cookies and get to know people around you. Here's the second thing, write a letter or make a call to someone who is grieving a loss. I think if you thought about it for a few moments, you could recall someone who lost a spouse, lost a child, lost a parent these past several months. And most of you are well acquainted with the grief cycle Right when you bury a loved one, a parent, a spouse, a child, there are so many people, so many calls, so much food, and there's about a five to 10 day window where you feel so loved and so supported, 
And then it's about week two that the loneliness sets in or the nature of life, someone else dies. And, and family and friends kind of rush over and triage emotionally that person. So maybe a good way to practice some holy sweat this week is to reach out to someone that you know is still grieving. And maybe that funeral was a few months ago and they need a call or they need a, a letter from you. Here's a third thing really practical. Bring some canned food to, to Shepherd's Heart. Shepherd's Heart Ministry is right around the corner from our church. It's at 34th and Bosque. And every week they feed about 550 to 600 people in our city. Last year alone in 2018, they fed 29,000 people in, in Waco. So maybe a great way to express or produce some holy sweat this week is to go through your house and go through your pantry and, and pull some cans. I'm not asking you to get rid of the cans of the things that you hate, right? The, the pumpkin pie filling that's been in there for three years. I'm asking you for to put some vegetables or some canned food in there that you, you like, that you would eat yourself and put that in a box. I even gave you the hours on the screen behind me. Uh, Good Shepherd is open, Shepherd's Heart Ministry is open Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday from um, eight to one. And then on Thursday, it's open from eight to six because Thursdays are distribution day. That might be a great way for you to produce some holy sweat, to follow in the footsteps of a serving king who came to serve others, for you to bring some food to Shepherd's Heart this week, just right around the corner of our church. Here's number four. Take time to meet one person around you this morning in this gathering when this gathering is concluded. I put that so you wouldn't start turning around right now and talking to people. But when this gathering is over, and I know, again, for some, like, man, I, I could do that every Every week, I know there's others, that's, it's, it's a struggle. It's, it's, a, it's a discipline of hospitality to get to know some people around you. But that might be, again, a, a nice, fairly easy, holy sweat moment today just to go up to someone before they leave and go, hey, I know I, I always sit in the exact same chair. You always sit in the exact same chair, like two chairs in front of me, but I've never met you before. Hey, my name is, and then fill in the blank with your name. That might be a good way to produce some holy sweat for some of you introverts today to get to meet some people around you. Here's the last thing, and everybody a little bit more serious on this. Give if you've never given, and give more if you have. And I'm talking right now, money. So now everyone's starting to holy sweat some, right? Just money. I know there's the time and the talent, and that's part of it as well, but there's no escaping that there is a call in our lives as followers of Christ to give financially. And this is, this is a this is a neat thing for me to say. This is not the pastor pleading for the midsummer budget doldrums. Like we're doing fine in the budget. Everything's good in the budget. You have been giving. Thank you for your generosity. The budget's doing just fine. But just because the budget's doing, doing fine and God is blessing doesn't mean that we pull back into disobedience just because other people are giving generously. So I'm just saying if you've never given before, I'd, I'd challenge you to sweat it out a little bit today and give. If you do give, I would encourage you today to, to give more, just to follow in the footsteps of a servant king who gave it all. So a great way to produce some holy sweat this week, to practice some holy sweat, is to, to give if you've never given, give more if you have. And here's my last statement. And this is kind of the overarching theme, really the entire gospel of Mark, but definitely what we've read this morning. True servanthood that follows the pattern of Jesus will require sacrifice. True servanthood that follows the pattern or mimics the footsteps or the character of Christ will require sacrifice. Want some proof on that? Look to the cross. 
You know, most believers in America, we want to follow Jesus into heaven, but we don't want to follow him to the cross. But in following Jesus to the cross, we exhibit probably the height of our desire to serve like Jesus in a self-centered world. I told you I was gonna come back and revisit verse 14 and verse 15, so let me do that very quickly. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. He was proclaiming the good news, proclaiming the, 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 good, the good news of God, the gospel of God, and here's what Jesus was saying. The time is fulfilled. The New Testament is opening up. The, the prophecies are now seen before you. The kingdom of God is at hand. What was once invisible is now visible. The kingdom is, is here because the king is here. Now, what should we do because of that? Repent and believe. Do you want to start a relationship with Jesus today? Circle those two words. I did in my Bible. Repent, which simply means turn away from your old life and believe. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Believe that Jesus did go to the cross. He died in our place. He died for our sin, and then he was buried, and three days later he rose. Believe, and you'll be saved and begin a relationship with Jesus. But I know a lot of you here today, you're believers already, became a believer as a, as a child, became a believer as a student, became a believer a few years ago. And you say, okay, preacher, so that's repent and believe. I guess that's just for, for people who aren't Christians who want to become Christians. I'm telling you, family, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you wanna grow in your faith this week and you want to grow into the character of Christ, you know what our daily practices should also be? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Let's follow into the footsteps of the servant king, Jesus. Would you bow your head with me, please, as we pray together? Father, thank you for the gospel of Mark, the beginning of it. We are ready, God, this summer to sweat it out. God, to be a servant just like Jesus, to follow in his footsteps. This good news for all of us this morning who have ever quit before or failed before, God, maybe there's been times we have quit on you or given up on you, but God, you have not quit on us. You have not given up on us. You're a God who forgives, a God who restores. And God, this week, I pray you'd give us the grace not just to follow Jesus into heaven, but to follow Jesus to the cross, knowing that the patterns of our boss, the patterns of the Savior, the patterns of the King was to serve God and to serve others. The Son of Man appeared not to be served, but to serve and to become a ransom for many. God, give us the grace to practice some holy sweat this week, to put others above ourselves, to be okay with last place, to serve like Jesus served. God, I pray you give us the grace to maybe do one of those things on the list of five or practical ways to, to serve like Jesus. Thanks for your grace. We thank you, Jesus, that you have come. And even now, we can prepare the way of the Lord in our lives by mimicking the servant king. It's through that name, the name of Jesus, that we pray. We joyfully pray together. Amen.